Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. It's a real pleasure to be here in this, um, I think I'll call it House of History. I'm going to introduce to you first a little boy by the name of Lincoln West, one of my favorite little boys, and tell you that Lincoln West had his problems because he had come here as an African, looking African. Now, when I say he came as an African looking African, I don't mean that he came necessarily from Ghana or Tanzania or uh, Kenya, all very beautiful countries. He might have come from that native land that our comedian Red Fox identifies as his own. He says that his native land, you know, is St. Louis. So Lincoln West might have come from St. Louis, but I like to think of him as being African. In this conversation, I'm talking with Nicholas Codwell, the Bell DeCosta Green Curatorial Fellow at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York. Nick curated Gwendolyn Brooks, a poet's work in the community, an exhibition that opened on January 28th and is on view through June 5th. Recently, the Morgan acquired more than 70 books, manuscript materials, and a portion of Brooks' personal library. The recording of Gwendolyn Brooks reading from the life of Lincoln West is from the Poetry Project archives, a reading at St. Mark's Church in 1981 in a program that included Tezake Shange, the American playwright and poet, best known for her play for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. The reading was just after the premiere. We thank the Poetry Project for letting us use this reading. Nick, before we talk about Gwendolyn Brooks' work and poetry and your exhibition, let's talk about you, your own interest in poetry and language. I'd like to say thank you for having me, um, first of all. And I think that my um, relationship to poetry and language is that I've always been a reader um, I've always enjoyed poetry. I've always enjoyed how language can communicate experience. And I think that's particularly important um, when we're reading about experiences that are outside of our own. Poetry allows us to connect to other people. And that is why I enjoy language and literature, why I study language and literature, um, and why being a memory worker and a librarian is so important to me. I think 
my job is to uh, share history, to share stories. And that is really what poetry means to me. Interesting, when I interviewed and talked with Kyle DeCunion, he said he also said he started as a reader. How, how important are books? How important libraries are? <laughs> and, and access to books and reading. When were you appointed the Bella DeCosta Green Fellow at the Morgan? It's a two-year fellowship. So my tenure will be ending this September. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about Belle Marion Greener, her original name. She was born in December of 1883, died in 1950, recognized as probably one of America's most prominent librarians and bibliographers, and was the, really the moving force in organizing and expanding the collection of J.P. Morgan and the basis of what's at the Morgan Library. But her history is fascinating. She's the daughter of Richard Greener, who was the first African-American to graduate from Harvard. And although she had been listed as colored on her birth certificate, she was light-skinned and passed as, as white. She changed her name to DaCosta because she said it reflected her Portuguese ancestry, which would be the reason for her olive complexion. She does have a very interesting history, made even more interesting by the fact that uh, Green burned all of her personal papers before her death. So we don't have a lot of personal writings, diaries, insight directly from Green about her life. The kind of only way we can study it is through reading about people she knew and worked with and reading the letters that she sent to other people. It's a really fascinating kind of history. Um, she was J.P. Morgan's librarian from 1905 until his death in 1913. But after that, she was the librarian for the Morgan Library when it became a public institution in 1924. And she was the director of the library for more than 20 years. Even after being J.P. Morgan's librarian, she had a long, long career of library work and was really an innovative librarian. This was at around the time in New York City where a lot of libraries and collections were becoming public institutions. Um, and so she contributed a lot to what does that look like? How do we make these institutions of knowledge public? Um, how do we share this knowledge between institutions and how do we bring communities into these into these spaces? Her career was um, really essential to our understanding of librarianship in America, but in New York specifically. Do you think J.P. Morgan knew that she was African-American and selected to, because of the circumstances, perhaps not acknowledge that? Do we, do we have any sense of that? So we don't have any sense that there are at least no direct correspondences that we have that um, anyone knew that Belle Green was of African-American descent. So we haven't been able to find any evidence that anyone knew. And it makes sense. It was kind of a, an open secret that she wouldn't have access to the spaces that she was in if anyone knew she was African-American. So we wouldn't have this knowledge of her. She wouldn't have had this long storied career if it was public knowledge that she was of African-American descent. Mm. <laughs> um, just... Our history, our 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 <laughs> our history, we it just haunts us over and over again. 
Your exhibition uh, is in one of my favorite curatorial spaces at the Morgan, that small little room just off the large open space where there's the cafe. I love to go and hear jazz or music, on sometimes chamber music on Friday evenings. And I understand that a garden has just opened, hasn't it? I mean, our garden opens soon, so it opens this summer. So it will be wonderful to see the garden through magnificent Renzo Piano renovation through the large windows. Absolutely. Tell us about what the Morgan has in their collection around Gwendolyn Brooks. It must be, must have been fascinating, or it must be, I speak in the present, fascinating to have the time and the access to live with Brooks' work. What a life. I mean, she was born in 1917 and lived, what, 83 years until her death in 2000. What do they have in their collection? I will say it's been a great honor, a great pleasure to work with Brooks's library at the Morgan. So what we originally had in our collection was most of her first edition printed books, many of them inscribed or signed, both the acquisition that you mentioned a portion of her personal library and more manuscript material. Um, we got even more interesting material, books that she had in her own possession, books that she had in her library, books that she worked from or read from, books that were inscribed to her. Often people would sign to Gwen with love, um, which I really enjoyed seeing because I know her <laughs> as Gwendolyn Brooks, the poet laureate, Pulitzer <laughs> Prize winner, but they, they're writing to Gwen. It was interesting to approach Brooks from this kind of more interpersonal relationship-based kind of research. So it led me into researching all these different connections that she had, her deep and long legacy. Not only was she a poet, but she was also a community leader and someone who had a vested interest in supporting other young poets and artists. Um, she was a patron, honestly, and it's been great to learn more about her life. I mean, I'm from Chicago, um, which is where Brooks was raised and lived all of her life. So I knew a, a bit about her work from growing up and hearing about her. But to be able to uh, study her more closely and see these works has been really amazing. Elizabeth Alexander, the poet and the author, most recently of The Trayvon Generation, in the introduction to The Essential Gwendolyn Brooks, which was published by the Library of America, describes her as one of the most influential American poets of the 20th century. Her poems distill the very best aspects of modernist style with the sounds and shapes of various African-Americans, forms, and idioms. Her career as a whole offers an example of an artist who is willing to respond and evolve in the face of the dramatic historical, political, and aesthetic challenges and changes she lived through. She started exploring creative writing at a young age, kept a journal from the age of 11, and then published her first poem at the age of 13. Of course, Nick, the quote that we're, is most often attributed to her work is that was in her autobiography. If you wanted a poem, you only had to look out of a window. There was material always, walking or running, fighting or screaming or singing. Perhaps you can tell us about, for those people who aren't as familiar as you certainly are with Brooks's poetry and work, some of the early poetry and then how it evolved. As you, as you were mentioning, um, Brooks had a long career, decades-long career, starting in the 1930s when she first sat down and said, I want to be a, a poet. That's what I want to do for my career. 
up to the 2000s. So her career saw Jim Crow era segregation, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the, the slam movement of the 90s. She was a very flexible writer. I think what is so great and important about her work is that it really spoke to her own lived experience. She spoke about the things that she was living through. And so, of course, the work changed as her life changed, as the circumstances changed, and as America changed. Her early work was really focused on her neighborhood, the South Side neighborhood of Bronzeville in Chicago. It focused around the everyday sights, sounds, and people that she saw. She gave like really intimate and empathetic portraits of her neighbors, of her neighborhood at a time where these people were kind of the overlooked, the unseen. So she really gave voice to the voiceless in her early work. And she was very trained in in formal writing. She wrote a lot of sonnets, a lot of ballads. And throughout her work, we just see the shifts in her writing as the writing around her was shifting. Um, So she became more into free verse, free free verse poetry, became more political in her writing, um, talking about the race riots that happened in the 1960s and 70s. So those are some changes that happened in her work, again, as the world around her was changing. So her first collection of poems, A Street in Bronzeville, and, and that's the neighborhood in Chicago where she lived, was published by Harper and Brothers in 1945. And we think that's, that's, a long, uh, that's a long time ago. And the poet Paul Engel wrote the book's first review in the Chicago Tribune. He called it an exceptional event in the literary life of Chicago. Absolutely, absolutely. Brooks once said, reflecting on her youth, it did not occur to me even once that the black in which I was encased, I called it brown in those days, would be considered one day beautiful. Brooks made it her job as a poet to speak to the beauty of her community. It's interesting that we often think of, when we think of poetry, we think of love and nature and grief and romance, you know. And as you said, Nick, hers were everyday people that had been ignored. You know, the preacher, the everyday woman, the young, dark-skinned girls. And, and she treated them in an empathetic way around their struggles as African-Americans, from dealing with systemic racism and poverty to moments of joy, love, and kind of painted intimate portraits of her, her community. She had known, of course, Langston Hughes. Who were some of the other poets that might have influenced her? She read uh, many of the classics, like all of us read Shakespeare and such, but she was very much influenced by Langston Hughes. Alden Brown, uh, one of her friends in Chicago, was also influenced by other creatives like Margaret Burroughs, who was a visual artist and the founder of the Sable Museum in Chicago, um, which is a museum of Black history. So not only was she working with other poets, but she was working with other Black people who had this same kind of charge to, to talk about Black history, to document Black history. And she was doing it through poetry, but she was in community with people who were doing it through art, through museum work, through his, history. Um, and I think that's what makes her story so rich is as she was in community with all these different types of creatives. And she had kind of a difficult personal life. She struggled and she never 
really had a lot of money. I mean, she always was kind of struggling financially. People often think that once you win a Pulitzer, that fame will kind of propel you through the rest of your life. But yes, she struggled before and after she won the Pulitzer. But what to me stands out is that even though she never became like a rich and famous poet, she always shared whatever she had with the people around her. She was always having poetry prizes for young children um, and giving out cash prizes from her own pocket. When she was a teacher, she sponsored her, her students to go on trips around the world, again, from her own, her own pocket. So I think in part, the reason that uh, she wasn't super financially stable was also because she shared whatever that she had with her community, which I think it, it lends to the fact that her legacy is so deep. Um, she helped and touched so many people with her generosity and with her deep just empathy for others. And imagine how lonely her life must have been at at many points. She was the first African-American to receive a Pulitzer Prize in 1950. It was for poetry, long before Toni Morrison or, or others ahead of her. One of her most powerful poems, I think, is A Bronzeville Mother Loiters in Mississippi. Meanwhile, a Mississippi mother burns bacon. She wrote at the time that her pen was dipped in blood, stabbed in, writhing in blood. Because this poem was about Emmett Till, the 14-year-old from Chicago who was murdered when visiting relatives in Money, Mississippi. Edward Hirsch writes a really beautiful essay about this uh, this poem in, in his recently published book, The Heart of American Poetry, uh, published by the Library of America. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about that poem because she she was looking at the mother of Emmett Till, but she was also looking at the wife of the man who murdered Emmett Till and, and what that is, the, the wife is the one who burns the bacon. So I think that poem, yeah, it speaks to her just talent with language, the kind of mirroring of the mother of the murdered child and the wife of the murderer and talking about the different perspectives. And I think it really takes a lot of uh, talent and a lot of empathy to be able to put yourself in those two very different uh, mindsets and to write a poem from both angles. And at the end of it, we come out with the fact that the death of Emmett Hill was a tragedy and um, that it psychologically affects everyone who was involved in that tragedy, everyone who was implicated in that tragedy. I will just read one of the lines. Nothing could stop Mississippi. He knew that. Big fella knew that. And what was so good? Mississippi knew that. Nothing and nothing could stop Mississippi. They could send in their petitions and scar their newspapers with bleeding headlines. Their governors could appeal to Washington. I think how perhaps prescient we look at today, (laughs) we look at voting rights (laughs) and what's going on with the Supreme Court. And we, you know, we could go back to this exact poem. Whenever I, I so often think of 
Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, Gwendolyn Brooks, what would she, how would she have, she would have responded the same way that she did then, now, with incredible poetry. My name is Tania McCode. I'm a senior at the Ethical Culture Fieldston School, and I will be reading the last quatrain of the ballad of Emmett Till. After the murder, after the burial. Emmett's mother is a pretty-faced thing, the tint of pulled taffy. She sits in a red room, drinking black coffee. She kisses her killed boy, and she is sorry. Chaos in windy grays through a red prairie. I think that one thing that Gwendolyn teaches us is how to respond to the things that are happening around us. I think she inspires us to respond because she spoke very plainly. She, she told the truth. She was a truth teller. And she thought of herself as a journalist, which I find very interesting um, because she was a poet poetry for her entire career, but she also thought of herself as someone who was telling a story. Yeah. So I think she teaches us how we can tell the truth through poetry as plainly as possible. I think that really speaks to this moment that we need people telling the truth about what's going on right now. It's interesting because she lived through the 60s. She, after the murder of Martin Luther King and, and the civil rights movement, she became more politically conscious and became a teacher mentor. And as you said, a, a real activist, which shifted her work from more introspective to more transformative and revolutionary. Also, which is in your exhibition, the fact that then there were now Black-owned presses that started publishing her work. So she shifted from the more traditional white presses to these presses that were owned. For example, the Broadside Press, which is one of the first Black-owned presses in the United States, founded in Detroit by the poet Dudley Randall. The Third World Press, the Black-owned press, started by Haki Matabuti, a young minty of Brooks. Perhaps you can tell us about the book Riot. Absolutely. So the book Riot, it's on show in the gallery in the show. I'm kind of front and center because it was really one of the first works I saw of Brooks that really made me say, wow, I, I need to learn more. Riot is this, it's a very like stylistic little booklet with a bold whole kind of punched out of the front of it with the word riot written in it. And when I, I saw that, I was like, I have to know what, what this is about. It was, it's a book of poetry um, written by Brooks. Um, it's about the days of rage demonstrations in Chicago that took place after the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968. So it was an organized action for people fighting for change. Thousands of protesters came out, really took the streets, um, demanding something has to change. Um, it was really an eruption of the African-American community in Chicago after all of this pressure from the police brutality, the assassinations, things like that. So Brooks writes this poem about the riots using an epigraph from Martin Luther King that says, a riot is the language of the unheard. So really speaking to riots being something that's important for a community to, to state their needs. 
and she prints this book with a broadside press, um, Black-owned press, um, founded by Dudley Randall, in part because mainstream pub publishing houses weren't interested in this type of material. They didn't want to publish this material. They were turning down Black writers and poets who were trying to talk, to talk about revolution because it's a very volatile time in American history, and they weren't, they weren't interested in hearing it. So she published with this Black printer. And my favorite part about this is that um, she ends up donating all of the proceeds from this book back to Broadside Press. Mm. She says, I don't want to take any money from this book. Um, I'm giving it all back to the press. And it was a way to help Broadside Press become established. And it's still running today as Broadside Lotus Press, in part because of Brooks's contribution and because of her support. So I think that's that's why it's front and center in the exhibition. Um, it's really one of my favorite works by Brooks because of the, hi the history behind it. Also, it's a beautiful little book. The design is striking. And I think it's something, again, Nick, that we would see today because it's, it's got, the title is in red inside this white circle. And it, it, looks, it appears that it's been shot through mm -hmm. this hall, but as if a gun. And you think of with all that we've had going on, she started two presses too. She started Brooks Press and then the David Company. Are either of those still going? Or No, because um, they were really like solo self-publishing type of presses. Um, she really, she started these later in her career in the 1980s. And she really appreciated the freedom of self-publishing her own work. So it was really a venue for her to have control over her own writing and work. Um, so it no, they no longer run. Um, but that's a little known fact that she was self-published. And I think it really speaks to the power that and confidence that she gained um, as a writer over the years that she wanted to have control over the design, what it looked like, people's full experience of the book object, um, which I find completely fascinating. And the white publishers, as you said, weren't publishing, they saw this kind of poetry as being revolutionary or whatever words they might want to use. Her language is so powerful. Her empathy is so deep, but her just incredible imagination. Is there a poem that you would like to read? I would like to read this poem called uh, Speech to the Young, Speech to the Progress Toward. And the story behind this poem is it is dedicated to Brooks's children. She had two children, Nora and Henry, and often gained inspiration from them in writing the kind of different trials and tribulations of motherhood. This poem is, it's dedicated to them, but it's also speaking to all young people at this time about the possibility of change. So I'll read it now. Say to them, Say to the downkeepers, the sun slappers, the self-soilers, the harmony hushers. Even if you are not ready for the day, it cannot always be night. You will be right, for that is the hard home run. Live not for battles won. Live not for the end of the song. Live in the along. Thank you. I think that poem is really important to me now. Um, she wrote it in 1970 amongst all of these, the race riots, the Black Power movement. Even today, 
the note to live not for battles won, live not for the end of the song, to live in the along, to every day do this work of social justice, of advocacy, was true in 1970, 50 years ago, and is true today. Well, you are one of the Trayvon generation. I don't know if you've had a chance to read Elizabeth Alexander's book. Well, I guess you've just described what that means. I worked in the civil rights movement many years ago, and it's it, it's difficult to say that so little has changed from from those years. Yeah. One cannot think about Gwendolyn Brooks, and as I, I think I mentioned this before, not think about James Baldwin, Langston Hughes, Toni Morrison. And we have a recording of Gwendolyn Brooks introducing James Baldwin at a program in Washington, D.C. She had just been appointed the Poet Laureate of the United States. She would have been about 80, and it was one of James Baldwin's last recording. So she, of course, outlived him and and would come to recognize his profound and prophetic insight into the frayed fabric of society and and his enduring wisdom on what it would take to kind of bring it back together. We can listen to that recording. You know the phrase, larger than life. If that phrase is valid at all, it likes James Baldwin. This man has dared to confront and examine himself, ourselves, and the enigmas between. Many have been called prophets, but here is a bona fide prophet. Long ago, he guaranteed the fire next time. No more water, the fire next time. Virtually the following day, we smelling smoke, looked out and found ourselves surrounded by leering, singing fire. I love hearing Gwendolyn Brooks speak and read. And and I just thought her words, when those are words that we could have used about her as well. And and certainly many people have. But it just, um, it, it, it's just wonderful hearing her voice. Nick, this has been such an interesting conversation, and I hope there's people will go to the Morgan. You have a blog up on the Morgan site so that people, if they're not able to get to the Morgan, um, they can actually see some of the images. Absolutely. There's an, a digital version of the exhibition um, online at themorgan.org if you're not able to make it to New York. But I really hope that some folks will be able to come join us at the Morgan and see the space. Thank you, Nick. This has been a very special conversation. Thank you. My name is Tamia McCode. I'm a senior at the Ethical Culture Fieldston School, and I will be reading We Real Cool. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel, we real cool. We left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon.
If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.